0: TBN Pinella Spark online at Let's com. a service of the Salem Media Group. Up next is Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. What are the marks of a dead church? I think if we know some of the marks, we'll be careful to spot those marks if they begin to take root and deal with it. First of all, a dead church lives in the past. It's always referring to the way things used to be. Not the way things are, but the way things used to be.
1: You are listening to Verse by Verse with Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Today's class brings us to a study of the Church of Sardis, the fifth out of seven letters to the churches in Revelation chapters 1 and 2. Pastor Steve has been showing us how these early New Testament churches in Asia Minor represent the different church ages throughout history, right down to the present time. It's been a fascinating study. At the end of our class today, I will tell you how you can obtain CD copies of the messages given by Pastor Steve at Lakeside, and how you can listen again to today's study. Verse by Verse is supported by the free will gifts and faithful prayers of interested listeners like you. Please consider making a tax-deductible contribution to verse-by-verse ministries as the Lord leads you to have a part in this outreach to thousands of listeners. The phone number to call is 727-239-0306. If no one is available to take your call, leave your name and number, and someone will return your call during regular business hours. That phone number again is 727-239-0306. Now with today's class, here is Pastor Steve. Now we want
0: to continue our tour of the seven churches and cities in Asia Minor. And as we continue, we have now come to the fifth city and the fifth church on our tour of the seven churches. As we've traveled this ancient postal route, we have visited, first of all, we visited the church at Ephesus. That's where we began. And we found it, as Jesus said, to be lacking in love. It's a church that had left its first love, left him as the primary focal point of love and devotion. Then we headed a little bit north up the coast, and we stopped by at the city of Smyrna and visited that church. And we discovered a suffering church, but it was a pure church, an absolutely pure church. Then we headed further north and we dropped by the church at Pergamum and found it to be a compromising church, a church that compromised with the world. And then last time we studied the book of Revelation, we began to head a little bit south. And in doing so, we visited the church at Thyatira, where we discovered it was tolerating the heretical teachings of a woman that Jesus called Jezebel. Now, our tour takes us even further south to the city and the church of Sardis. And what we're about to study is, in some respects, potentially frightening, because while it's not lakeside now, it could be. It could be. And that's what we want to warn ourselves about and take heed to what we're about to study. So let me read it to you. Revelation chapter three, here's the message in verses one through six to the church at Sardis. Jesus said to the angel of the church in Sardis, right? He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I'll come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, the first thing I want you to note is that this is a letter that is filled only with rebuke. There's really nothing good that Jesus has to say About this church. Evil is the general rule of this church rather than good. Secondly, this church is relevant for us. As I said before, it is a church that potentially Lakeside could turn into, and you'll see what I mean in a moment. But we dare not look at these churches, any of these churches, and say they are irrelevant. They are very relevant. I remind you, as we look at chapter 1, verse 19, We read this, John was told, write the things which you have seen, that's the vision of Christ, and the things which are, those are the things that are happening in John's day. The things that are, the the various churches, the seven churches of John's day, and then the rest of the book are the things that will take place after these things. So what we're reading about are real churches that were existing in the first century, and I believe the Lord has chosen these churches because they are indicative of what any church can be like in any era. So these are really, these churches are mirrors for us to see ourselves in and to take heed to the warnings that Jesus has given each of these churches. Now, as I said, I don't think we're going to see present day Lakeside in this church, but potentially it could be Lakeside 20, 30, 40 years down the road, so, as in each of the previous letters, the outline is very similar. The various truths about this church come under six headings, sometimes they're five, sometimes they're they're six, but six headings. First of all, we see the correspondent to the church, the author of this letter. The letter starts off to the angel of the church in Sardis right. Now, once again, Jesus is writing to what we would call the pastor teacher. Of the church in Sardis, the one who, along with the other elders, was responsible to correct the church, to teach the church. And once again, we're about to read that Jesus describes himself in terms of the vision that he has given of himself in the first chapter, but there's something added. Notice to the angel of the church in Sardis, right, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says, This. Now, as I've told you, every time the Lord addresses a church, he goes back to the vision of himself as the glorified one, because how he describes himself is a perfect fit for what that church needed to hear. But this is a little bit different. There's a twofold description of Christ here, and he goes beyond the vision of chapter one. First of all, he says, He who has the seven spirits of God. Now, what is he talking about? What is he talking about? Well, if you look back at Revelation chapter 1, verse 4, before the vision, we read this, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. So we've read this language before. Technically, that's not part of the vision. But here Jesus describes himself as the one who has the seven spirits of God. Now, what is this in reference to? It is a reference to the Holy Spirit, the third person in the triune Godhead, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. But why does he refer to him as seven? There's only one Holy Spirit. Seven, though, is the number of completion or fullness in the Bible. That may very well be what is intended here. It is also possible that this is a reference to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, in which we read of the Spirit of the Lord described in a sevenfold work. We read this in Isaiah 11, verse 2, the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, strength, knowledge, fear of the Lord. When you add all that up, along with the expression, the Spirit of the Lord, it's a sevenfold description of the Holy Spirit. So it may very well be that this is what Jesus is referring to here. Jesus has the Holy Spirit in his fullness, in his complete, diverse, sevenfold work of the Spirit of God. Secondly, he is described as the one Who also has the seven stars? We know from Revelation chapter 1, verses 16 and verse 20, that these are the leaders of the churches. He says that. He says that we don't even have to guess at that in chapter 1, verse 20. As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels or messengers of the seven churches. So, What our Lord is saying then is, He is describing Himself to the church at Sardis as the one who guides and directs His church by the fullness of the Holy Spirit through the leadership of the church. In other words, this church needed to have God's Spirit operating through its leaders, and it wasn't. That's why Jesus describes it this way. They had a very serious problem. They were devoid of the Holy Spirit, and you'll see why in just a moment. You see, Christ's church is a spiritual ministry. It has to be guided by spiritual men. It is not simply an organization. It is not a building. It is a spiritual ministry. That's what was missing. The missing ingredients in the church at Sardis involved the operating of the Holy Spirit, and that is, folks, absolutely vital because without the Spirit of God, you really don't have a church. You might have what is a church in name only, but you don't have a true church. As Jesus said, I will build my church. He builds his church through the ministry of the Holy Spirit who draws people to Christ and infuses the life of God in them and comes to dwell in them. So The Spirit of God lives in every believer. So we move from then the correspondence of this letter is Jesus Christ, who has the leadership of the church under his control and the fullness of the spirit of God, who desires to operate through the ministry of the leaders. So what's the condition of this church? As we move to the second point, what's the condition of the church? What was the condition of this church that would cause Jesus to describe himself as the one who had the Holy Spirit? It's very simple. They did not have the spirit they did not have the spirit. Let's read on in verse one. He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name that you're alive, but you are dead. You have a name that you're alive, but you're not, you're dead. I take it that anyone visiting in the first century, this church of Sardis on a Sunday would have observed a number of activities going on. They would have observed, no doubt, people praying, singing, listening to a message. They might have left the church with very positive feelings. They might have thought this church is alive. Their singing is good. It's loud. They sing songs that we like. Their praying sounds so sincere. The preacher sounds eloquent, dynamic. Lots of activities going on here. This church is good. Maybe it was even a large church. We don't know. Perhaps it was a large church. We do know it had activities because Jesus speaks later on of its deeds. So it looked good on the outside. It looked alive, Jesus said. But in reality, it wasn't alive. It was dead. One Bible teacher called this church at Sardis a morgue with a steeple. Another called it the first church of the tares. You see, this church only had a reputation, Jesus said, for being alive, for being vibrant. And apparently, the people of this city approved of this church. There is no, nothing we read here about persecution, nothing we read about suffering for this church. Apparently, this was a church that had people who others liked. It was no threat to the community. But the condition of this church is that it was dead, regardless of the reputation it had. Regardless of what people on the outside looking in thought or regardless of what the people inside the church thought about their own church, it was dead. Now, what does that mean that it was dead? It doesn't mean that their church service had no spunk to it, no life to it. He's not talking about that. You may have visited churches where you feel it's kind of dead, but that's not what he's talking about. It means that this church is a church filled with people who were not born again. Again they were not physically dead. They were physically alive, but spiritually dead. They were non-Christians. Non-Christians. In other words, it was a church made up of predominantly non-believers. Paul said in Romans 8 9, if you do not have the spirit of Christ, you don't belong to him. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and 6 that the Spirit of God dwells in every true believer. This was a church where the Spirit of God was not indwelling most of the people. It was dead. We read in Ephesians chapter 2 that deadness is how God describes unbelievers. Dead in sins and trespasses. That's what it means to be born again. You become alive. You have the life of God come to dwell in you. In 1 John 3:14, John says, "We know that we've passed from death unto life because we love the brethren." So, to be dead is to be an unbeliever. To have life is to be a believer. The church then at Sardis was for the most part a non-Christian church. That's why I said someone called it the first church of the tares, filled with activities perhaps Going through the motions of worship, but dead, doing it all in the flesh. It'd be no different than a liberal church today that speaks of Jesus Christ, maybe has a big Bible on the pulpit, not that the Bible is ever taught, but perhaps a big Bible. But the people are not born again for the most part. That's what was going on there. I don't know what their theology was, but I'm just saying a comparison. And that's why Jesus tells them that he has the Holy Spirit, because Jesus gives life through the Holy Spirit, and this church needed life. It was dead because it didn't know Christ. Now, how can a church be like that only 60 years after Christ walked on the earth. Do you realize that? This is just 60 years removed from the ministry of Jesus. This, folks, is during John's lifetime. This is a church, while we don't know how it began, the speculation is that probably the church at Ephesus founded this church. There was sort of the mother church of all those churches in Asia Minor. This is in John's lifetime, just 60 years after Jesus walked on earth, and already it's an empty shell. How did the church at Sardis die? Well, apparently the same way the city of Sardis died. Now we know that it had to do with sin because verse four said, but you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments. That's another way of saying sinfulness. It had to do with sin, but the church had become like the city in which she resided. Let me explain many years before John wrote this letter, the city of Sardis have been a thriving city. It was the capital of the great kingdom of Lydia. The city was once noted for its strengths and incredible wealth. In fact, this was the first city to make coins. The wealth of Sardis was incredible. The greatest of the kings of Sardis was a man by the name of Croesus whose name, I'm told, is used as a proverb for being wealthy. There's an expression, I don't personally use this, but there is an expression as rich as Croesus. So, Sardis was associated with wealth, and it was under King Croesus that this city rose to great military strength. And why? Because the original city of Sardis was built upon a rock hill that went up about 1,000 feet in the air. It was believed then that no one could penetrate this fortress city. And as a result of being built on this hill, the people began to feel very smug and secure and comfortable. As a result of their military security, the citizens of Sardis became quite comfortable. As a result, they also became soft, overindulgent. It started to decay by letting down its guard, the city. The people let down their guard, and they got involved in overindulging in wealth and luxuries, moral decadence set in lethargy, dullness, dullness characterized the people of Sardis. And history tells us that the city of Sardis was conquered not once, but two times. This seemingly invincible city on a mount, 1,000 feet in the air, was conquered twice for the very Same reason. Now, there was a period of time between these conquerings, but for the very same reason, an enemy found a way up this mountain, and because the people of Sardis thought they were so secure, they actually left the city unguarded. Nobody was on guard, nobody was watching. So the enemy came up. After it was conquered, Sardis was no longer a great city. And what did it do? All it could do is glory in its past, its past splendor, its past reputation. That's all that they could glory in. And, and, and you see what happened then, the church at Sardis took on this very mentality because churches often take on the characteristics of the culture, of the community, of the society that they're in. And the church at Sardis, the people there have the same mentality Jesus said, you have a reputation, but you're dead. The church had a reputation for past glory. It was living on its name. Notice verse one again. He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says, I know your deeds and you have a name that you're alive, but you're dead. had a reputation for its past glory, but it was living on that name. And in reality, it was dead. A dead church in a dead city. So here's the question. What do we learn from this? What do we learn from this that can affect us as a church body? What can we do as the people of Lakeside to avoid becoming a dead church, a church filled with only predominantly unbelievers? What are the marks of a dead church? I think if we know some of the marks of a dead church, we'll be careful to spot those marks if they begin to take root and deal with it? First of all, a dead church lives in the past. A dead church lives in the past. It's always referring to the way things used to be. Not the way things are, but the way things used to be. Now, we can certainly learn from the past, but we should not live in the past. The past is the past. But there are churches who you'll hear things like, oh, the great preaching we used to have here. Do you know who was our pastor 25 years ago? Do you know who was our pastor 50 years ago? That's a church living in the past, the good old days. That's all they talk about. That's a danger. I know of churches that were once great preaching centers, but now they're not much. Pretty much they're museums. That's all. All they do is live in the past. So, One of the marks of a dying church is its living in its past glory, not thinking about the present. Secondly, a dying church does nothing about the present because it's too preoccupied with the past. It does not seize the present opportunities to reach new people for Christ. There's no new life coming into the church. No new and creative ministries because the church resists change. We didn't do this 40 years ago. Why should we do it now? It resists change. It's living in the past. But listen, while the word of God never changes, cultures change, attitudes change, beliefs and society change, and a church has to be open to not certainly changing the message, never, but new ways to communicate the gospel And if a church doesn't do that, it will die. It will become irrelevant. It'll be talking only to itself. A church that fails to to change and adjust its methods to where people are at will eventually find themselves talking to no one but themselves. They'll be answering questions that nobody's asking. Irrelevant. Listen, we have to be a church that never changes the message of the word of God. Never. But we have to be a church that can change and adapt to the world that we live in.
1: Pastor Steve's words encourage us to be alert for signs of personal cooling off in our fervor to serve the Lord and of our own local church's traditional rut of busyness. May we seek to serve our Lord Jesus out of love and gratitude for what He has done for us. Remember, at any time, you can log on to our website, versebyverseradio.org, To learn more about this program and to listen again to today's lesson or any of the hundreds of other lessons available for free download. You may also call verse-by-verse at 727-239-0306 for any questions you may have about the Bible or to request a CD copy of this message. That number again is 727-239-0306. Our website is www.versebyverseradio, all one word, .org. As a reminder, Verse by Verse is a listener-supported ministry. If you have been blessed by this message, would you consider sending a gift to help maintain this program? You can donate online by going to our website, www.versebyverseradio.org and clicking on the giving tab. Or call us at 727 239